Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the June 29th, 2020 podcast episode. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in. Um, so today it's going to be a business analysis episode. Uh, the company I decided to look into is Alphabet, aka Google. And I kind of... Honestly, I've been pushing off from looking at any large companies. Like, um, I, uh, I, I guess I haven't really talked about my journey as an investor much on this podcast. But I've, I've historically had a huge bias to never look at large companies. I, um, historically, even as an investor, most of my investments are were always in companies on sub two billion dollars uh, in market cap. So. Most of the times, like I am investing in pretty small companies. I think um, before the kind of shift I had as an investor. So, if I think about how I used to invest um, in the quote unquote more like typical value investing um, genre, like especially um, I'd say right after leaving um, my previous job at at an institutional fund, my largest holdings. Um, I think I'd say about easily two stocks, uh, two businesses made up about 30, 30% of my um, total holdings. And so they were the two biggest. And yeah, they were both sub 400 million market cap um, when I was investing in it. And they were highly illiquid companies. So that's the kind of background that I'm used to. I'm used to looking at small companies um, where... It's always easier to analyze businesses and just get a better grasp on it. And if you've been an, uh, an avid listener, you you will notice that the companies I've been looking at as of late, um, I guess since even the inception of the podcast, they're relatively big. They are pretty big household names. I've been looking at companies like Spotify, Pinterest, Atlassian. Like these are all pretty big companies. They're all, you know, more than ten billion dollars in market cap, which definitely is a departure for me from the kind of small businesses I'm used to looking at, which is weird because most people go from large to small, but I kind of started small uh, and I'm moving into the large space. And this this is probably the largest company I will ever look at. Um, I don't hold my don't hold me accountable to that, but I think in the near term, this is probably the largest company I'll ever look at. And it's yeah, Alphabet, like Alphabet, I think. As of today, has I haven't looked I haven't looked at the markets today, but I'm gonna guess it's still around floating around the 900 billion market cap mark. I think that's where it was last time I checked. But yeah, honestly, I have no I don't find Apple interesting, and Amazon's kind of interesting, but I'm more interested in Amazon in just reading Jeff Bezos's letters. I don't know if I'll ever really look into the business so much. Um, yeah, I just. I want to try to limit complicated businesses. But yeah, like why Google? Why am I looking at Google? Well, to kind of give you a backdrop, um, this will probably be, I think, a two-part episode. I don't know yet, um, but it's definitely not going to be a one-parter because I just I started um, 
I read through the annual reports and at least like five, six, you know, years worth of shareholder letters and various articles, listened to all kinds of interviews on advertising just because I I kept on getting deeper into the weeds because I had so many more questions. And lo and behold, I am still not done my uh, first pass look at Google. Like this is not supposed to be exhaustive, but I kept on asking questions and I kept on going down rabbit holes and thinking, does this really matter? Am I looking at the right things? I don't know. So yeah, I am talking in a very winded way of whether this will be a two-part series or a three-part series. I don't know. But today I decided I'll talk about what I learned today, which is more so talking about um, the, I guess, general kind of IPO history of Google, just the fact that it's an unconventional company, um, how the company makes money, and just kind of the market positioning it has um, in its kind of major business segments. Yeah, so... Typically, like you you know from my main fashion, I like to just read annual reports, proxy statements, and shareholder letters as a starter. And sometimes, depending on the questions I go through, um, it'll take me down a windy road. So, yeah, I started with, I'd say, something like eight pages worth of just pure data, um, like just facts that I'm collecting and just a bunch of questions. And so I started writing out my, um, I guess, write-up. Um, on Google Docs, once again, using Google Platform. And yeah, like it's, I'll just kind of touch on the key points, but Google's just one of those fascinating companies where I just, I don't think I realized how much of my life is actually um, run by its platform in many ways because you know, I use YouTube, I use Gmail, um, you know, Googling is a verb for us. When you answer search queries, most people use Google Chrome as a default browser which takes you to, you know, Google search. Um, I've used an Android phone before, like I used it once in my life. And I know friends who have uh, Google's Nest products in their homes, Google Pay is used for payments. It's just, the list just goes on and on. And so there's this massive digital, you know, this company that runs a good chunk of her life, but they are really an advertising company, right? That's at the highest level. That's what they are. In one essence, they're a giant digital billboard that shows products of other companies over time. And I think I just want to kind of go over some pretty fascinating points. I thought um, so. Google's history. Google was founded in nineteen ninety-eight, and it's crazy to think about that because I think even up till two thousand and two, uh, which is a year when they came to Canada. Um, I was still using Yahoo and uh, MSN.com. Like that, those were the search engines I was using back in Hong Kong. And yeah, Google was never kind of a default thing. So it's still it's in the recent part of my life um, that Google's kind of become and rose to this prominence. And Google's founding story, I think, I didn't go too deep into it, but it's the classic literally two uh, PhD grads from Stanford uh, PhD students in Stanford building a company literally out of a garage, right? And lo and behold, they've built this giant search engine company. And I think the IPO story alone is pretty fascinating because so if you read the 2004 shareholder letter, which is the first one, um, I think it was Larry Page who wrote it, but the signature uh, there is both Larry and Sergey Brin, the two, uh, the two co-founders of the company. And Immediately, they kind of cite Warren Buffett when they refer to the 2004 letter as the inaugural owner's manual. And they start the 
letter by literally saying Google is not a conventional company, kind of setting the stage for that. And so the, the way the company IPO'd in 2004 is fascinating too because they did a couple things that were very unconventional at the time. One is that they did an auction IPO, which I thought was very fascinating because generally in typical IPOs, so the general way like an auction IPO works is that it's literally what it is. And a very simplified version is an auction. So, you know, people bid for, if people bid for more shares than are available and bid at high prices and the IPO prices will be higher. And if the, um, and the IPO price will be lower if there are not enough bidders or if people bid lower prices. So it kind of lets the investors kind of set the stage and lets kind of market efficiency take hold. And um, the co-founders note about how, yeah, because Google is in essence a advertising auction, is an auction-based advertising system, they've kind of had experience in that internally with creating the product. So that's kind of a joke they make where auction IPO makes sense for them. But in essence, it really does, right? Because it um, it's allowing investors to kind of take charge and it also allows smaller investors to be part of it as well because in traditional IPOs, um, you don't the investors collectively, not just hedge funds, but the broader public don't really get to participate in, on it fully. Um, usually you have all these investment banks that kind of set up prices and the incentives are different, right? The traditional IPOs, the investment banks will always want to push up IPO prices as high as possible so that they can get a fat commission check for their services. And same thing for venture capitalists. I really doubt venture capitalists want to have an IPO come out and you know, have run the risk of the investors deciding to place the IPO price at a lower amount than that they wanted to. I mean, most... I really don't think that most VCs um, would like that for any of their LPs. They, I'm sure many want to exit the fund after you know some 10, 20 year lockup period. But regardless, Google did an auction IPO, which was fascinating. And something else I found fascinating is that when it IPO'd in 2004, it was a $23 billion market cap company. That is a pretty big um, market cap to IPO in because people are kind of even... Because I feel like now, uh, where people are kind of, um, I think, being critical of tech companies that are staying private longer and kind of IPOing at a pretty big market capitalizations, there's a lot of judgment and um, uncertainty there, and there's criticism there. But I mean, this was 16 years ago, and Google IPOed at 23 billion dollar market cap. That's not a small number, especially 16 years ago, where there were way less, um, you know, VC money fueled tech companies. Um, IPOing. I mean, this was also just four years after the dot-com crash, so I really doubt anything extravagantly fascinating was created um, during that four-year period that could co- create this like large market cap company. So I think that was really fascinating to know. And the other thing is that Google, when it IPOed, was at a ten times price of sales multiple. Now I don't. I'm not saying that valuations should ever be based on price of sales multiples, but it's just one thing to look at and. I mean, right now, so as of June, late June 2020, um, I checked that the price sales multiple is at six times for Google. And just for you know, easiness sake, just comparing that. The multiple did compress, but it's just fascinating to just even conceptually grasp that when it IPO'd, it was 10 times price of shares, at uh, price of sales. And even now we have people who are criticizing companies for, you know, high price sales multiples, like anything 10 times, even 20 times. And they're very critical of it right now. I can only imagine how critical 
investors would have been to Google um, in 2004. Yet, if we look at the 16-year period in kind of share price um, uh, growth, I think when the IPO it was at $85 per share, and if we kind of just pick a number of like yeah, like $1,400 per share, like I think Google share price exceeded that. I want to say it went close to 1500 sometime, but I think yeah, like recent memory has me at something like 1400. So if I just pick that flat number, we're looking at something like a 19% CAGR over the last 16 years. So that's very impressive. And this is even with margin compression, um, not multiple compression, where you had 10 times price of sales when it IPO'd, and right now it's going for six times price of sales. But you still would have made 19 times um, on your money for the over the last 16 years. So in in one aspect, it's kind of I think it's what um, Terry Smith from Fundsmith talks about, where he has this wonderful exercise where he compares um, businesses that have really high return on invested capital, but you buy at a high multiple, compared to those that have low returns on invested capital that you buy at a low multiple. Um, and even with multiple re-rating, generally the business with a high return on invested capital does better. And this is kind of a similar scenario to that, where the multiple was re-rated to a lower amount, which should impact the return you get on the business. But given how high the return on invested capital tends to be for Google, um, I haven't done that math yet, actually, but I think on an average basis, you go to any kind of... Let me look at that right now, actually. Um, the dirty math that um, you just go on most kinds of free finance sites and they'll show you like I use QuickFS quick FS and yeah the 10 year median return on return on invested capital is around like 18.7%. So that's pretty accurate. Like it's if if you have a 10 year median return of about 18.7% and you know your CAGR is at like 19%, yeah, it's pretty pretty close. So that kind of uh, works out pretty well. But anyhow, yeah, so I think that was pretty fascinating to learn about Google. Um, and I think the other thing is that when the IPO, they did a dual sh um, dual class structure. And nowadays, dual class structures are pretty common, like the class A shares and class B shares. Um, many, I'd say, tech companies right now have that kind of um, share structure. So I think the companies I reviewed previously, I believe Pinterest, Atlassian, Workday, Spotify, they all have dual class um, share structures. Also that... The founders can maintain control of the business. Um, and yeah, so that is relatively common now. But back when Google did it, it wasn't so common. So that's what they also kind of share in their first inaugural letter, that how the inspiration for the dual class structure came from media companies, from the New York Times, the Washington Post, Dow Jones, Wall Street, um, the Wall Street Journal. And how they used that that structure to incorporate into their own IPO. And in one way, it's it's for me kind of telling. It's as if um, Sergey and Larry kind of had an idea that Google would become a media company. Like it wasn't going to be just kind of a quote-unquote tech company. Like what is a tech company really? Because every company is a tech company. But that Google would actually be a media company, which I would say it currently is um, just based on how involved it is in the advertising market. And all the products that it's kind of created for the kind of ecosystem we live in. So I think that was also fascinating to learn. Um, and it just kind of continues to push us the boundaries of how unconventional the company is. Like in one aspect, like you try to think about a company in early 2000s after the dot-com bubble that is going to be 
doing catered lunches. Like nowadays, all the table stakes benefits and perks um, that quote unquote people call as part of key culture in any kind of new venture backed company or even non venture backed tech companies is all this emphasis on helping create a wonderful environment for people to work in. But when Google did it, it was not table stakes. I think they kind of are the pioneers in that movement. I think the whole idea of investing in culture, the whole idea of um, providing all kinds of benefits like shuttle services, nap pods, and um, all kinds of like massages, just everything that allows people to be their best. Um, I think that's also why Laszlo Bach's book, I think it was called Work Rules, was also such a huge hit because it was one of the few books actually talked about culture inside a company. And it kind of made it more commonplace for, I think, tech companies to do that um, and start like investing in people, So, which I think is really fascinating. Um, and th- these are all things that I've always known kind of on the purview, just on the side, but I've never really looked into Google in depth before. And I think another thing is like Google, like this is what I think, I think Google made it acceptable to view companies as more like a nation. Like Google, um, people who work at Google call themselves Googlers. And not many companies, I'd imagine, um, in the early 2000s would be creating that kind of culture where, you know, I don't know, people who work at Ford aren't going, where the Forders or something. But Google slowly made that acceptable. So now I see all these tech companies call themselves by their company name. And even the consulting firms will try to adopt that because they want to sound cool and try to mimic Google's culture. So I think Google's definitely continuously been at the forefront of innovating and doing things that they believe to be right and just doing it just because, not because everyone else is doing it, which is the case for most tech companies nowadays. So... I think that was kind of the big interesting thing where it's, you're just continuously learning about how the company was so unconventional and so um, ahead of its time, at least in these areas of kind of developing people. And so, yeah, like, so I, I, the annual report, I think, was fascinating alone just because I was just learning so much about what the company does because there's so many parts of it that I never real, realized. Like, So let's look at the kind of traditional products, like things that you you and I would interact with on like a daily basis. Like so there's Google Maps, Google Photos, Google Lens, Google Play, YouTube, Android, Chrome, Gmail, G Suite. Like I'm writing my report um, right now on Google Docs and I have Google Sheets open for all the numbers. Um, and I have a bunch of stuff on Google Cloud. So there's there's all that that um, my life just completely interacts with. And then there's all these moonshot companies like i've heard about a couple like so nest for your home i knew about that but there's one called calico which is tackling like aging there's capital g which is financing so they have something like a banking arm they have gv the google ventures um so they have the venture capital fund they have wing that does drone deliveries waymo the self-driving car fiber which is like trying to create internet for the world uh verily which life sciences which is like fighting disease and health problems and I think they're also somehow using that to work with AI detection, AI to like detect cancer, especially in lungs and the breasts. They also have DeepMind, which is also, once again, AI technology. So yeah, they have all these moonshot companies that are tackling so many fascinating problems out there. Um, And I just never really fully understood that, but I'm just getting a better grasp of it um, now. So yeah, like that, I think alone is fascinating, but 
overall though that's a lot of stuff but yeah how does google make money like i get it it's pretty involved in my life but yeah show me the money that's the big question and so generally google's revenues i think in 2019 hit um, just north of 160 billion us dollars and about 84 percent of it came all from advertising and google doesn't do i'd say a greater job in breaking out all the various segments um and i guess it can, it can get a little complicated but generally advertising revenue has kind of been the meat of the business so if we look back even to 2017 advertising made up something like 87 percent of the revenues and that number has been slowly declining and i imagine it's because of kind of a combination of things but it's kind of the growth of the cloud business so the cloud business i think makes up something like five percent of total revenues now and that business has been growing um i think so year over year like 50 percent plus and i also think the other segment of the business is kind of contributing to it so the other segment makes up about maybe 10 percent of google's revenue and that incorporates kind of the it's a mix of things. So it has YouTube subscriptions, um, licenses for the Google Play Store. There's also the hardware stuff. Like, you, you know, there's, yeah, so Google also makes phones. So there's Google Pixel. Um, and so there's the Nest stuff for the hardware. And there's Google Home. There's all the Chromebooks. So all these little gadgets that also make up a good chunk of their sales too. So there's that big other section. The All the moonshots I talked about are categorized called other bets. And they are a negligent part of the revenue. Um, I want to say, I don't even know, I don't think they even make 1% of their total revenue. So it's small. They're just kind of there. But like like they say, these are moonshots. It could be massive. We don't know. Um, but yeah, so most of it's really focused on the advertising segment. So advertising, the big chunk is search. So search and it's, neighboring google platforms like so whatever that intertwines with it like g suite um, gmail maps photos like wherever it's a google product and you see photos i mean ads on it it's kind of the search ecosystem and that makes up the majority of google's advertising let's see if i did a quick um mix uh math it's around 69 percent of total advertising revenue comes from google search and its neighboring platforms youtube makes up something like um just north of 10 percent of ad revenues and so it's uh, it's around like 12 13 percent of total ad revenues on a collective basis it accounts for just under 10 percent of google's total revenues youtube ads specifically not including the subscriptions and then there's all the whole remainders which is like the google network that they call and that includes like adsense admob google ad manager these various other properties that also work with google and in terms of the geographical split um they are a global company and they actually make 46 percent of their money um in the u.s so less than 50 percent and 31 percent from europe and europe and africa emea and middle east yes sorry and 17% from the Asia Pacific and Australia uh, region. So those are kind of the revenue splits. Um, they are truly a global company. And what else? I think, yeah, so especially with the recent kind of talk about Facebook, um, I was curious because so I think as of this day, June 29th, 2020, um, Facebook is getting a lot of heat and advertisers are talking about 
um, boycotting their spend on Facebook. And I was curious, so I looked into Facebook's um, top 10 advertisers list. And lo and behold, um, most of those advertisers who are boycotting really do not matter to Facebook's um, top line. I think like Unilever um, and Verizon said they're not going to advertise on Facebook or something, but they're not even in the top 20. Um, I think Unilever is in the top 30 advertisers, but to give you context, Facebook's largest um, customer is Home Depot that has an estimated spend of like 150 million in 2019 in ad spent on Facebook. And that's 0.2% of Facebook's ad revenue. So the concentration is very limited. Uh, It's very small. So all these kind of large companies thinking they have a big sway, I really don't think so. They're just kind of, I think, virtue signaling in my opinion. Anyhow, that's a different topic. But yeah, that got me curious on Google's customers. So who are Google's customers? They have so many different business lines. They have advertising, which is the big chunk, which is 80% plus. But then there's cloud as well. And what what about YouTube? Um, Like the whole other side, which is like subscriptions and all that. So simply put, everyone is Google's customer. But I was curious on concentration, which they don't really share in their annual report. So I had to do more digging. And I think... So there's some data from 2011, which showed that Lowe's made up the most um, ad spend on Google during 2011. So that's nine years ago. So it's a little dated. I yeah, I, I sorry, I had to scratch my ear. Um, yeah, so that was that's a little dated, but gives it still gives you perspective. So back in 2011, the largest ad spender accounted for 0.1 percent of total sales, and so it's pretty well distributed in terms of the customer mix. In 2019, Expedia and Booking, the two major travel companies, spent $11 billion on advertising on Google. That's 7% of total ad revenue between the two companies. And especially with COVID hitting the travel segment in 2020, that's definitely going to take a hit. And that kind of though puts the largest, I think, concentration um, of ad dollars at something like 3 to 4% of google's ad revenue so overall um it's not as low as i thought it would be like compared to facebook for example but i also think that's probably the higher end i would imagine most um companies that advertise on google would still be sub one percent i'd imagine they have a large client base that kind of just spans out and then as for cloud i'm not sure what the customer breakdown is but they have all these large enterprises home depot paypal target HSBC, Bloomberg, etc. I don't imagine they have much concentration um, of revenue there. Um, and I think generally those will be more subscription-based revenue. Like as far as advertising goes, there, there really aren't any contracts. Um, and I think that kind of makes it relatively defensible, especially in the COVID era. Like it's not like a billboard where or a TV ad where the one-time cost is relatively high. Like Google ads are pretty cheap depending on how you want to utilize it. And you can go in and out extremely quickly. So the barrier to exit is extremely low, um, which makes it pretty favorable for Google. Like This is totally anecdotal, but kind of um, going off of what I learned when I was doing the Pinterest research, um, talking to some of my friends in growth marketing, product marketing is that, yeah, like most companies, um, especially consumer oriented, like retail oriented, seem to dedicate about 40 to 50% of their budget on Facebook and 20 to 30% to Google. And then 
spread out the rest and everything else. So there seems to be a kind of a limit where you just won't spend 100% of your ad dollars into one platform. So they will divvy it up, but usually it's just going to be Facebook and Google getting everything. And Facebook, I think, does have a bias to to have more of the small medium and uh, small medium businesses as part of their client base. Um, so if you're a larger business, you might use more Google. Um, but regardless, I'd say there really isn't much of a con- customer concentration risk. It's pretty diversified out to practically everyone, which takes me to market. Um, I was curious, how big is Google's market? Or how big are they really in and what is their size? So generally on a global scale, Google take accounts for something like a 31% share of global digital ad market revenue. And Facebook is just behind them at 20%. And Amazon is just behind them at much less. I want to say something like 6%. Um, that might be accurate. Uh, I'm just too lazy to do to do the math but google's at 31 percent, facebook at 20 percent, amazon is just n- not that close to neither of them not just yet at, at least although i think they are kind of competing in the search category because i think that's also tricky like if we look at the global search market um i have all these charts here which make it all pretty but you can read them and actually publish the full uh research but generally when you look at like a country by country breakdown on any major country google is just like by far ahead they dominate 90% of all searches except in specific countries like South Korea or Russia where they have their own internal engines. Um, I'm surprised in Russia because Google actually beat out Yandex and now they're the dominant search engine, which is extremely fascinating. And it shows you the power of Google and its global reach, even in you know cold Russia. On like just like an overall global scale, I think Google has more than 90% plus market share of just global search. So they have a extremely dominant position as far as cloud goes they are a third place player um aws just leads by far with i think many various uh, data points i don't know how accurate all these are but um, aws is accounting for something north of 30 percent market share and azure microsoft azure has been kicking up their market share growth um and i believe they're in the mid-teens percentage in market share and google sits at something like um i think six percent of share so they are the big three players um and so generally it seems like whether it's in advertising or cloud they are kind of google is playing either in the dominant as like the largest number one or they are going to be in like the top three so they're still in contention and but my my biggest fascination was was youtube because um so the reason i started uh actually getting curious about Google was because I was so fascinated about Spotify. So um, if you listen to my previous podcast, like you, you know how much I I think am fascinated by Spotify's business model and just how kind of they have their own unique corporate corporate culture. And I know how Google um, invests heavily into the people and their culture. And now some might, some may argue that now it's not at so much um, the case compared to, you know, 15 years ago, but, they are kind of the pioneers in people development. So that was part of the fascination. But YouTube has also been a huge fascination point for me as well because I find them to kind of be in a market all their own. It's kind of like Spotify in one way. Um, and so I, I got curious to think about, well, how would you look at market share for um, YouTube? Like, Do you think of it as a social platform? In that case, you look at just kind of 
the total amount of monthly active users or user accounts, for example, like active user accounts and YouTube is just considered just behind Facebook um, in 2019 usage numbers. And obviously these are all just grains of salt. Like these values can continue to change, but it just gives you an idea of comparatively like compared to like their biggest competitor, which would be Facebook, um, who has who is dominant in the social platform um, landscape. They have Facebook, they have WhatsApp, they have Instagram. These are all separate um, products that they're competing against. These, I would say, make up the top, they're easily, I think, the top five um, most used social platforms. And YouTube is in second place, just in between Facebook and WhatsApp in terms of people's active usage. Um, and so in one way, that is one way to look at it because ultimately people only have 24 hours in a day. And the big question is, okay, well, 24 hours in a day, let's say you sleep eight hours, you have 16 hours. Um, what percent of what percentage of the 16 hours does someone does YouTube take up um, in that person's life? So, cause that's kind of the battle for the attention economy. Uh, how much of some of your day do you spend on Twitter? How much of your day do you spend on Instagram, et cetera? So I think that was very fascinating for me. And I don't really have an answer um, at the moment, but I think what's been more clearer is just kind of thinking about where YouTube plays. Like it's not just, you know, a streaming platform. Like it does that mean it competes with Twitch and Instagram uh, live? Well, not really. Twitch dominates gaming. Like, Hands down, I think there's something like it's seventy percent market share if you look if you use um, live hours watched as a metric. Um, they just dominate everything gaming. So YouTube doesn't play there. Um, Instagram Live, it's or Instagram videos, uh, I think or stories is what they are called. I don't use Instagram, so I'm also kind of out of date on that. But um, from what I gather, they're usually more shorter form content, whereas YouTube actually allows for this long-form content, which seems to be where they're trying to focus their attention on to build engagement um, and, I guess, make it more valuable for advertisers. But, yeah, so if I think about that, it's comparatively, it's um, kind of in a league of its own. Some might say it's similar to Vimeo. If you compare to Vimeo, I think the market share difference is that YouTube has something like an 80% market share and Vimeo has something like 10 to 15% market share or something. So if you think about it from that way, YouTube definitely just blows Vimeo out. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where I kind of started digging into um, as of today. So that's the overview. I hope this was fascinating. I hope this was interesting. And yeah, if you want to learn, continuously learn more with me on Google and just kind of going through my thought process and everything, yeah, tune in for tomorrow where I'll go through part two um, just based on the kind of notes I have right now. What I hope to be digging into is probably um, into the cost side. Like I have, I have all these notes on um, the cost of goods sold for an advertising business, which I found fascinating. I didn't know this stuff existed, but it was kind of digging into why is why is their gross margin not a hundred percent? What 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 is in their cogs? So, looking into that um, reinvestments for Google, um, looking to management. That's like a big passion of mine. So. Yeah, all the share ownership, all the executive pay, all that stuff that um, I dug into with like five years of proxy statements. So yeah, that's also going to be stuff I'll talk about tomorrow, hopefully, um, talking a bit into the culture side. Yeah, that should be it for tomorrow. So yeah, this was today's episode. Hope this was fun. Hope it was insightful in some way. And yeah, I hope to have you tune in tomorrow. Um, I hope to have the kind of 
business report published tomorrow as well. So we'll see. But yeah, fingers crossed. And yeah, have a good one.